Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be continuing through our study in the Gospel of John. uh, Last week, we were in the first seven verses of John 14. And this week, we're going to uh, cover the remainder of the chapter, verses 8 all the way up through 31, which is a bigger chunk of Scripture, if if you know me, that I have a hard time preaching on large blocks of Scripture. I tend to like to dice it up into smaller, more uh, easy-to-handle chunks. Um, But I really felt led of the Lord that this was all held together by uh, a common idea. And this morning, we really want to explore two big ideas that we find in John 14. And then, after exploring those two big ideas, I want to point out how these truths find wonderful expression among God's people, which is what we are, when we take the Lord's Supper together. And the first big idea is this. It's better that Jesus went to be by the Father's side than for him to remain by our side. Uh, You might remember in uh, the verses leading up to this, both at the end of chapter 13 and the first part of 14, the disciples are really concerned because Jesus, this one who they've been walking with now for three years, has told them that he's going away and they can't follow him where he's going, at least not right away. He says he's going to come back and they'll follow afterward. But they're really heartsick over this idea that they're going to be separated from Jesus. And so in chapter 14, Jesus is really going to explain to them why it is better. You should be excited. It's better that I'm going to the Father's side than that I would remain by your side. That's the first really big idea in this section of scripture and the second big idea that we're going to look at is this it's better by far to have god living inside of us than living alongside us the disciples up to this point have had jesus with them but jesus is going to drop an absolutely enormous idea on them you're going to not have god with you God is going to take up residence inside of you, and that's better. That's higher. It's going to be much way cooler. And the big overarching idea that encompasses those two other ideas is the interconnected nature of God and his people in the work of redemption. So let's dive in. The first idea we want to look at is this. It's better that Jesus went to be by the Father's side than for him to remain by our side or by the disciples' side. Beginning, I'm going to back up into verse 6. Here we are in John 14. I'm going to start at verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him. And have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. We'll pause here for a second. This exchange between Jesus and Philip highlights a major theme in John's gospel, and one that we've highlighted before. 
without spending a lot of time on this idea, it is still important to pause and acknowledge the very important truth at the heart of this exchange. You might remember way back in the beginning of our study through John, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. What that means, that we've seen the glory of God in Jesus, is that all of God's holiness and perfection, all of God's excellence and worth and awesomeness were made visible and put on full display in the person of Jesus. In Jesus, the invisible God became visible, so the naked naked eyes of human beings could behold his glory. This is what the author of Hebrews was communicating when he said this, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says of Jesus, He is the very image of God. In Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So this is such an, a, a, a hugely fundamental, important truth to understand and see and believe, that to see Jesus correctly is to see and understand the heart of the Father. So Jesus says, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You want to see him. You want to know what he is like. You want to know what his heart is towards you. All the words that I have been speaking, those have been his words. All the works I have been doing, he has given me to do as a showpiece demonstration of who he is and what he is all about. And this is an important truth, and I think this is why John keeps repeating and highlighting it. He really wants us to know that Christianity is not about a bait and switch. It's not... God putting on a new face in Jesus. Jesus is the fullest expression of God's heart. He is the image of the invisible God. But then we come to verses 12 through 14, where Jesus says some things that are, to put it mildly, very striking. He begins this way. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And here again, the context is Jesus is leaving. He's told them I'm going away, and you can't follow me. But he wants to follow that up with assuring them, or maybe not assuring them, maybe challenging them that the work is not done. That those who believe in me will will continue the works that I've been doing. You're going to continue to say the things I've been saying. You're going to continue with the mission that I came with. And not only that, but then he says this, you're going to do greater works than I did. And I have to pause right there. What in the world is he talking about? What? Uh, These guys knew better than we did. They'd been walking with Jesus for three years, and they had just sat back and um, watched in gobsmacked amazement as Jesus spoke and storms stopped. 
Jesus spoke and dead people came out of tombs. Jesus changed water into wine. People were born blind, and he miracled up vision. What do you mean we're going to do greater things than you did, Jesus? What an amazing statement. And then he follows that up with this. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Those are some really attention-grabbing verses. They grab our attention not only because of the things that he promises, but also because of the language that he uses to surround those promises. He uses words like whoever, whatever, and anything. And these words, of course, seem designed to capture our imagination with a whole world of unrealized potential in Christ. Fellow Christian, do you know who you are? You are whoever. And fellow Christian, do you know what that burden is that God has laid on your heart? That is the whatever and the anything he spoke of. It is an absolute scandal that Christians make so little use of prayer when Jesus himself has surrounded prayer with such generous language. Whoever, whatever, anything. God, make me not be so silent in prayer. It's ridiculous that I don't pray more. It's almost like he's daring us to try it. (laughs) Doesn't that seem like the kind of language he's using? He begins as he often does when he wants wants to tell us something that is really, really important by saying, truly, truly. This kind of reminds me of in in junior high, when somebody would go up to somebody and and say, I think so-and-so likes you. And they'd say, yeah, but does she like me like me? Right. It's like, well, there's liking somebody, and then there's liking liking somebody. And so when Jesus says truly, truly, he is emphasizing that by repetition to say, man, you guys really need to sit. What I'm about to tell you is true. You can take it to the bank. It is bedrock for sure. The God of the universe is not just telling it to you truly, but truly, truly. The only time, by the way, that he goes to another level and uses three times is when he's talking about the things that are of the uttermost importance. For example, God is described as holy, holy, holy. Very rarely in Scripture, but really sit up and pay attention when God says it three times. But twice is strongly enough for me. And then he goes on to say that those who believe in him will do greater works than he did. Wow. And that whatever we ask of him in prayer, provided that we ask it in his name, which is to say that the prayer is rooted in a right understanding of who Jesus is and that the request is not selfish, but it agrees with Jesus' heart. Whatever we ask him in prayer, he will do it. He will. And there is no small print. There is no catch. This is not hyperbole. This is a promise from a God who never welches on a promise. It is almost as if Jesus, in these verses, is daring us to see if we'll make good on this. Whoever, whatever, anything, try me. Maybe the most startling thing that Jesus says here is in verse 12, when Jesus says, 
that those who believe in him will do even greater works than he did. And we need to be careful about this word greater. There are a couple of times in the Bible where Jesus confronts our notions about what constitutes greatness. For example, Jesus says in Luke 7, 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. No man is greater than John the Baptist. Okay, we need to understand what constitutes greatness to understand in what way John the Baptist is greater than any of the rest of us. Or what about when Jesus told his disciples that whoever wanted to be great among them must be a servant to all? There he is clearly confronting the disciples' closely held and cherished ideas about what is great. And so when we come to this word, when Jesus says that you will do greater works than I did, we need to understand what constitutes greatness in the work from Jesus' perspective. I'm really often struck by Thomas. Remember Thomas after Jesus is resurrected? Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to all the rest of the disciples. I think I, I take that to mean that, you know, how some people just mourn differently. Some people want to get together with other people when they're mourning. I think Thomas was one of those people who just wanted to lick his wounds in private. He was off by himself. He just couldn't be around the scene. He was too heartsick over what had happened to Jesus. So he wasn't there. But they go to him after Jesus appeared to them, and he said, I would only believe that this is true if I could stick my fingers in the holes, right? <laughs> and later, he's with the disciples, and Jesus appears again, and Jesus invites him to do that. And of course, then Thomas sees, he believes. He says, you are God. It is wonderful. But then Jesus says that it's more blessed to believe without having seen and there again, I would think, man, that would be such a tremendous blessing. That would be the acme, the highest, the most wonderful thing to actually see Jesus with my own eyes and be able to put my fingers in the hole. And Jesus says, no, it's more blessed, it's more happy, it's a higher thing to believe without having seen that. And there again, we're just confronted time and time again by Jesus that our notions of what constitutes the highest, the best, are different maybe than his. So we need to be careful when Jesus says you're going to do greater works that we don't think, well, I rather suspect he means something other than what we might first imagine. I think many people, including me, hear these words of Jesus and they imagine that he is saying we will do works that are greater in power than the works he did. However, I think it's more likely that Jesus is envisioning a coming work that is much greater in its extent and its impact on the world. The miraculous signs that John documents throughout his gospel are significant, of course, or maybe the word should be significant, because they illustrate deeper truths about who Jesus is and why he came. John says that these things were done so that we might believe. This is the work that Jesus hopes to accomplish not that we would marvel at him like a street performer at the extent of his power in working these things, uh, but that we would, the greatest thing is that belief would be born from having seen these things. The, the thing that Jesus works is belief in our hearts. Jesus did a lot during the three short years of his earthly ministry to alleviate human suffering. 
According to the New Testament, Jesus gave sight to the blind. He made the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak, the crippled to walk. He healed lepers. In three instances, he actually restored life to the dead. On two occasions, he fed huge crowds with just a little bit of food. And he did lots more besides. Everywhere he went, Jesus was confronted by the ravages of disease, poverty, hunger, death, injustice, brokenness of every sort. However, everyone he fed went on to become hungry again. Every leper he healed eventually died from some other cause. In every instance where Jesus healed someone who was blind, their eyes eventually went dark again in death. And poor Lazarus. That guy had to die twice. And Jesus' ministry was isolated geographically to just one small area of the globe. But through his church, the truth and significance of who Jesus is and what his death and resurrection signify would go forth with power and the results would be more enduring and believers would be called out of every tribe and language and nation. The book of Acts documents the beginning of the greater work that Jesus said would come. At Pentecost, as Peter had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and he preached, thousands of people were called forth from the tomb of their sins. And the eyes of their hearts were miraculously opened to see and believe. More converts were won through Peter on that day that insofar as the Bible records, Jesus won over the span of three years. You will do greater works even than these. And, and really and truly, I don't think it, it really is the same. I think very often we look at the miraculous, amazing physical act of Jesus calling Lazarus, for example, out of the tomb. And we go, man, that is greater in power than anything I've ever seen happen in the church. But you, at the moment when you first believe, do you not see and understand that in that moment, really and truly, and I'm not just speaking figuratively, I'm speaking in terms of the ultimate reality, you were called forth from the tomb of your sins. Ephesians 2 says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead when you were called forth unto newness of life. If you've ever brought anyone to the Lord in salvation, you've brought them to the place where they have come to, tr to put their trust in Jesus for salvation, you did the same miraculous thing Jesus did when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. It's true. And you opened the eyes of their heart to see. And it happened here in Aristic County or wherever that was, and not just in one small corner of the globe. I think this is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about greater works being done in the next chapter of redemptive history, the church age. But the most important word in that verse is arguably the word because. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. 
Notice the link between verses 10 through 11 and what Jesus is saying here in verses 12 through 13. In 10 and 11, he says this, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on, the, on account of the works themselves. What Jesus is saying here is an amazing truth, and we need to let it sink down into our hearts. Jesus, in coming to the earth as a man, laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes. Jesus was God. Jesus was there with the Father at the very beginning, and before that, he was without beginning. He is God, equal in divine essence and power to the Father. But Jesus, in coming to the earth, laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes. He who was almighty said, I will now only operate through the strength of the Father. He who was omniscient, knowing all things, allowed himself to become a developing fetus in the womb of Mary and willingly decided that he would know what he knew through the omniscience of the Father. He who was omnipresent would become limited to one place, but he would trust in the operation of the Father. And so he says here, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And now what is he saying in 12 through 13? He says, because I am going to the Father, greater works are going to be done through you. It's because I am in you, I will be in you through the Holy Spirit, that these things are going to be done. You're going to operate with the same power you have witnessed me operating during this span of years. And that brings us to our second big idea for the morning, that it's better by far to have God living inside of us than living alongside of us. Verse 15, we continue. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Uh, just a quick note of observation earlier when Jesus was saying, explaining to them that they had seen the Father, he says, the basis that you know you've seen the Father is because you've seen me. And now he says of the Holy Spirit, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him. And he says the exact thing over. I wonder if he said it more slowly. Like, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. I I want you to imagine walking side by side with the Son of God for three years, seeing all that he did and hearing all that he said. Uh, Rex Ruiz, another pastor, points out, imagine being there when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Wouldn't you want to be around a man like that forever? This reminds me of when I was a police officer, which seems like a thousand years ago, but right out of college, I became a police officer. And when you first join a police department, you go through a period called field training. So for a long time, you'd ride around with an experienced officer. You've been to the academy, but you haven't seen exactly how the streets work. So you watch a more experienced officer, how he handles people, what he does, what he doesn't do, all that stuff. And in the town where I worked, it was the only city in that county And right downtown, there were 13 bars. And on Friday nights, when everybody got their paychecks, it was a zoo. I remember going out on my first time with my field training officer and being horrified. Uh, Blood was spattered on me that night. (laughs) People, People fought with us a lot. They were all had courage in a bottle. And I'd never been in a fight in my entire life. And I was really amazed at how well this guy handled himself. But eventually the time came when they said, field training is over and you're on your own. And I slid into that cruiser on a Friday night all by my lonesome. And I went all by myself to bar fights. And I was horrified. (laughs) I I was really scared. Really scared. And because I was like, man, I need that other person here to show me. And so I understand where the disciples are at when Jesus is saying, you're going to continue the work, but I'm not going to be here anymore. And they're visioning themselves going toe-to-toe with the intimidating figures of the religious authority. They imagine themselves going toe-to-toe with demon-possessed people. They imagine themselves trying to address the needs of people with horrible illnesses. They imagine themselves trying to persuade people without the power and wisdom of Jesus' teaching. They've just been riding along in the passenger seat this whole time, and they are like, we do not have what it takes, Jesus. And so Jesus says these words that must have been an absolute bomb to their spirit, I'm going to send you a helper. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. You won't be alone in the way you're imagining and envisioning this. And of course we'd want to be around a man like Jesus forever. But wouldn't it be better still 
to have the uninterrupted communion with Jesus that comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As great as it was for Jesus to be with the disciples, there were times where they couldn't be with him. And Jesus is promising them something higher, better. Guys, we are enjoying greater communion with God in this moment than the disciples enjoyed with Jesus when they were in his very presence. This is a true statement. And I don't think many Christians have begun to explore the depths of what's available to them in the Holy Spirit. Once Jesus paid for our sins on the cross and then ascended to the Father, he could send to each of us the person of the Holy Spirit. This is why it's better. This is why we find the because in chapter 12. It is one thing to bask in the glow of the light of the world, but it is another experience altogether for that light to fill our inner world, transform it, and spill forth from us into the outer darkness. During the span of Jesus' earthly ministry, again, he laid aside the independent use of those divine attributes, and in great humility, he made himself, who had been equal to the Father in divine essence and power, he became like one of us. But because Jesus was perfectly yielded and obedient and trusting to the Father, and because he sought his glory, not his own, he showed us what is possible if by faith we allow God to move in us and through us. And now through the gift of the Holy Spirit, God is moving in and through his church. Us, here, now. And the great calling of our lives is to become, by the Holy Spirit's help, a more pure conduit for God to flow through by being more yielded, obedient, trusting, and governed by faith. However, because Jesus laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes, he was limited in many significant ways. And we've already covered those. He wasn't omnipresent when he was in the flesh. But now through the Holy Spirit, he is. Today there are millions of Christians all around the globe, and he is active in every corner of the earth. Jesus taught his disciples as no teacher ever had but they had very little understanding because they had not yet been born again. Much of John's gospel account is devoted to chronicling their confusion, their not-quite-right grasp of everything Jesus was teaching. However, after the Holy Spirit came, he could then lead them individually into all truth. And they, who had not been particularly good students, would become, under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit, teachers. They who had scratched their heads at the incomprehensible things Jesus had said would not only commit his words to paper, but would explain his words to others. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God would speak through them as well, just as Jesus had spoken the words given to him by the Father. Greater works. Jesus is eager to explain to his disciples who are understandably sick at heart at the prospect of being separated from him that it's better to have God take up residence within them than it had been for God to walk by their side as Jesus had been doing. He explains that they will have understanding. They will have peace. 
They will have access to divine power and wisdom. They will gain the capacity to live a different kind of life. They will have victory over sin in their lives. The fruit of the Spirit would grow in their hearts and minds. They will be endowed with gifts gifts by which they could serve. And when they face opposition, the promise of 1 John 4.4 would be theirs, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The church is this strange, miraculous mingling of divine power and ordinary human faithfulness. And that's what Jesus is describing here in these verses. Because Jesus was going to the Father, we would see even greater works done. And now by speaking of the Holy Spirit, he is explaining the means by which those greater works will be accomplished. Jesus goes to the Father, the Spirit comes to us, and he doesn't just come alongside us, but he actually indwells us and makes of us new creations. Consider this. The Holy Spirit was so vital to the greater works that Jesus envisioned and promised to his disciples that he told them not to do anything about the Great Commission until they had received the Holy Spirit. Wait in Jerusalem, he told them, until you receive the Holy Spirit. And now, the promise of Ephesians 3.20 belongs to us. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. That is the power that allows us to do the greater works that Jesus envisioned. And so, fellow Christians, my hope and my prayer surrounding this message this morning is that we would go out with here filled with a sense of adventure. <laughs> maybe, maybe these words, especially the words in uh, verses 12 through 14, about the greater works, about the whoever, whatever, anything in prayer, maybe we need to do some exploring of those ideas. God has called us to a much bigger, greater, more adventurous life in the faith through the Holy Spirit than I personally have laid hold of, and I want to. I'm challenged by these words that Jesus said to his disciples. I'm challenged by the example of Jesus that he was so yielded and obedient that God flowing through him, the Father flowing through him, did the works and gave him the words. And what's possible for me if I were more yielded, more trusting, more obedient, if I prayed more, if I prayed with persistence? We are the whoever he spoke of. And that thing which God has laid on my heart is the whatever. Now, one of the things that ties these verses together so beautifully is the emphasis that Jesus places on the interconnectedness of all the players in this story of redemption. Verses 18 through 21 describe the interconnected nature of our communion. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I, live in, uh, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. We're all connected. We're all in communion. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me, will be loved by my Father, 
and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Uh, when we talk about interconnectedness, if you, uh, in my house uh, that Sarah and I bought in Washburn, uh, we're very excited about coming up with plans to renovate the interior. It's kind of like a big blank slate, you know. It's, it's, it used to be an old grocery store, and so the downstairs is just completely gutted, and it's a blank canvas. We can make of it whatever we want. There's a lot of wires in there that are not hooked up, and I know they're not hooked up because I licked them. That's my test. <laughs> so far, I haven't found any live ones. But of course, when we talk about being connected, right, if I, if I were to take those wires and hook them up to the box, there would be a test to see if they're connected, right? And that test, don't lick that. Children, don't do it. <laughs> I have to be very careful. Children watching at home on the internet do not lick the wires. No, that's a bad idea. Um, but there is a test. You can get the voltage meters, I suppose, but I usually just plug something in and turn it on. And if it comes on, it's working, right? And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, the, the disciple named Judas, not Judas Iscariot, it's the disciple we know the least about, by the way. This is really the only time in the Bible where he speaks up and he's sort of uh, presented to us as existing. His name is Judas, but he's not Iscariot. He says, hey, how are you going to appear to us but not to the whole world? And Jesus' explanation is that... Um, those who love me will obey my commands. And what he's talking about here is a diagnostic. I run a diagnostic. I guess when I plug a lamp into a socket and turn it on to see if the electricity is flowing, I'm running a diagnostic. I'm seeing if it's working. And Jesus is really in this answer is giving Judas, not Iscariot, a diagnostic to see if he's connected here where he says, I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you, he then immediately follows that idea by saying, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Do you see how he starts with the chain? I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then he reverse engineers it through this diagnostic all the way up to explaining how they're connected, and this is the proof of it. This is the electricity flowing. The fact that I'm in you is that I'm spilling out of you. This is essentially what he's saying. In John 14, he says this five times in these short span of verses, by the way. In verse 15, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Just a few verses later, he repeats himself, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. A couple verses later, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then he says the same thing, but he frames it negatively. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands, he is saying that our obedience is one of the very important ways that we have of saying to God, I love who you are. I want to be with you in what you are doing, and I want to be like you. Don't get the wrong idea here that, obedient, that loving Jesus consists of being obedient. John, John Piper likes to use this analogy. He says that's no more true than you can get hungry by eating. You, you cannot 
prove yourself that you love by obeying any more than you can make yourself hungry by eating. No, you eat because you're hungry. You obey because you love. It's one of those ways we say to God, I love who you are. Jesus is saying that when you're connected to me, when the wire is hooked up and the, and the spirit is flowing through, the light will spill forth when you hit the switch. If you say you're full of me, I'm what's going to be spilling forth from your life. If you love me, you will be obedient to the commands. Obedience is not how we dutifully prove our devotion. If that were true, the Pharisees would be the best examples of what love looked like. Their dutiful, their careful devotion to the law would have equaled love. And Jesus at every turn exposes them as charlatans who had not love except a love for self. Love does not consist of obedience. Obedience is an expression of love. And these commands really are a reflection of who Jesus is, and our embrace of them is simply an expression of the Holy Spirit in our life pouring forth and saying, I love who you are. I delight myself in who you are. Jesus, who of course is our example in everything, modeled this for us in John 14, 31, here at the end of the chapter. He says this, But I do as the Father commanded, so that the world may know that I love him. He's our example in this. Again, he is showing us the way. He is saying, you see how I have obeyed the commands. This is proof of my connectedness to the Father. And your life of yielded obedience to the commands as an expression of your love is going to be the diagnostic test that shows that you are sincerely connected to the power source. Here in, uh, at the end of this chapter, Jesus explains some things that are supernaturally available to us that are not available to the world generally. We have a supernatural helper. We gain the capacity to live a supernatural life. We have a supernatural union with God. We have a supernatural teacher who helps us see and understand the word. We have a supernatural peace. And the key, the key to all of this is found in these verses, these five separate times, where Jesus points us to the truth that to determine if we are connected to Jesus through the Holy Spirit is to, is to the diagnostic is, are we obeying from a place of love? 